May I invite your attention to open your copies of God's Word, and let's take a look once again at a story found in in uh, John chapter 18. John 18, we'll look at that this morning. But while you're flipping your in your Bibles to find that, um, among the numerous other things that I know that you're praying for, uh, you just I, I'd just like to add this. There are, there are three groups of people from Grace Evan that are on short-term mission trips this week. One in Costa Rica, one in New York City, and one in the uh, the inner city of our own city uh, in Memphis. You know, isn't that interesting that the needs in Memphis are just as great as the needs in New York, and the needs in New York are just as great as the needs in Memphis, and the needs are all the same, pretty much. Um, a world flailing away without Christ. So um, keep those folks in mind as they're uh, as they're away this week. I'll read you a, a just a, a, a relatively brief portion of John 18, beginning at verse 33. We'll, um, we'll end up in verse 38. So you follow as, as I read from this portion of God's inerrant word. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Guys, this is a, it's a simple sermon this morning, um, but it has some some fairly serious and complex ramifications. I say it's simple. It's simple, at least in its central premise. And, and here is the central premise. As a Christian, as followers of Jesus Christ, we belong to two kingdoms. We have a dual citizenship. And both of those kingdoms to which we belong are on display in this story here in in John chapter 18. There are two kingdoms that are clashing here in John 18. And they are represented by their respective heads. Uh, One of the kingdoms, of course, headed up by Jesus Christ. The other headed up by Caesar, as seen in his representative Pilate. 
So what you have in John 18 is the clash of two kingdoms. It is Christ versus Caesar. It is Christ versus Rome. It is Christ versus government. It is Christ versus nation. Two kings and two kingdoms. And as Christians, we have a dual citizenship. Non-Christians do not. But we as Christians have a dual citizenship. Members of two kingdoms. And as you might expect, those two kingdoms clash, as you see taking place here in John 18. They clash because they are so vastly different. Their, their values are in, are in many instances polar opposites. And, and the text explains why that's so. Jesus says a couple of times in verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from the world. And because it isn't, you see, my citizens differ greatly from the citizens of the other kingdom. He goes on to say, my servants would have been fighting, but they're not. Why aren't they? Well, because... The value system in this other kingdom is so vastly different from the value system in the one that is headed up by Caesar slash Pilate. Had we been governed by some other set of values, maybe we would have been fighting. But our values are different. Different. How? How so? Guys, I, I, I bet you've all heard the term secular humanism. Humanism has been around for centuries. It didn't just come into being in the, in the 20th century. I think the first time that the Humanist Manifesto was published was in 1933. Uh, but humanism in some form, in some brand, has been around for centuries. In fact, most would say that the founder of humanism, the father of humanism was a pre-Socratic philosopher by the name of Protagoras. And and Protagoras summarized the essence of of humanism in his motto. His motto is homo mensura. Everybody knows what that means. Homo mensura. It means this, that man is the measure of all things. There is nothing higher. There is no supreme being who, who reigns and rules over the affairs of human beings. There is really no ultimate distinction between a human being and a supreme being because a human being is a supreme being. That's the heart and soul, ladies and gentlemen, of secular humanism. Consequently, you can see, I hope... How, how different are the value systems that govern one kingdom as opposed to this other kingdom headed up by Jesus Christ? And, it, and, and guys, it, it creates quite a tension. Um, at least for us Christians, it creates quite a tension because 
We belong to two kingdoms. Let's talk about the tension. You know, um, <laughs> I think we're all somewhat moved, maybe not, but I think we're all somewhat moved when we sing, when we hear Lee Greenwood sing his song, I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free and I'll gladly stand up next to you because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Now that might not, Lee Greenwood's rendition might move you. That one might not. But, but, um, guys, I'm not making fun of that. I'm, I'm not making fun of patriotism. There, there's, actually, there's something, there's something attractive about the patriot. Isn't, isn't there? We love our country. But our country is dominated by a value system, by a philosophy that is completely antithetical to the kingdom headed up by Jesus Christ. I, I am here to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that as we celebrate the birth of our country, and, and we're proud of that, we belong to another kingdom. We belong to two kingdoms. And the values of those two kingdoms clash violently. If you want to see just how violently, you can see the clash that is on display in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, his, most, his most famous book was The Cost of Discipleship. It wasn't his only book. But... Um, Bonhoeffer died. He was hung. He was executed by uh, the Hitler regime um, in 1945. Like three weeks before Germany surrendered, Bonhoeffer was uh, hanged because of his, his opposition to the Nazi regime. And guys, interestingly, there's a, there's a, huge old book uh, that's on his life that you ought to get uh, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer that's being read by many today. But in the book, it points out that one of the things that that contributed to, to Bonhoeffer's views was a movie. A movie. <laughs> a movie that was based on a book. A book that was, that was written by Eric Remarque. It, um, it sold almost a million copies in, in, uh, almost instantly. Within 18 months, it had been translated into 25 different languages. The book, of course, um, was entitled All Quiet on the Western Front. It was made into a movie in 1930. It was made into, I mean, it was remade into a movie in 1979. Um, Richard Thomas was the star of the movie. You remember him? He was the, um, um, he was John Boy in the Walton series. Uh, Ernest Borgnine and Richard Thomas starred in the 1979 version of All Quiet on the Western Front. 
It was a movie. It was a book that that dealt. Well, the movie dealt with the the issues of the horrors of war in such a way that it was that it was a. It was something that contributed to to Bonhoeffer's whole all of his views as to our dual citizenship. The movie uh, won Best Picture of the Year. It also won an Oscar for the Best Director. But it was it was a a portrayal of the horrors of war. Um, the, the the movie opens with this wild-eyed teacher. He's got a room full of students, all young men, and on the blackboard behind him is a is a quote from the Odyssey, uh, celebrating this this soldier hero who who sacked Troy. And the teacher goes on to quote from Horace, um, that, that famous line from Horace that says, it is a sweet and fitting thing to die for one's country. And so this teacher is exhorting his students about going out and defending the fatherland. And, and so they all march off en masse into the, to the mud and the death of the trenches of World War I. By the way, the author of the book, Eric Remark, had fought in World War I on, as a German soldier. But in the movie, all of these students of this, in this class, all of them are killed. And before they die, most of them lose their minds or are cower or are guilty of just some pretty serious, serious cowardice. But the movie uh, created a firestorm of outrage, particularly in Germany. Um, the Nazi, the National Socialists in Germany, you remember who they were. They were the ones that the name became Nazis. You've heard of them? The Nazis, when they came to power, were so outraged by the movie, considering it to be a piece of international propaganda, that they began to ban the movie. They couldn't get it stopped, and so Goebbels, who was the head of propaganda for Germany took what was called the Hitler Jugend, which was the Hitler Youth, and sent them into the theaters and uh, with a strategy. And their strategy was to let mice go in the theater. You know, to release mice or, or smoke bombs or sneezing powder. And then the people would run out of the theater and the Schutzstaffel, which became the SS, created a riot. And by the time of the Nazis came to power in 1933, the movie was outlawed. And it wasn't shown again in Germany until after the war in 45. But Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was in the United States when the movie came out. And it was in theaters everywhere. And so one Saturday afternoon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer went to the movie with a friend of his who happened to be a Frenchman, Jean Lasserre. And so a German... And a Frenchman sat side by side in this movie as they watched German soldiers and French soldiers butchering one another. And in what is probably the most moving part of the whole movie, um, there is this struggle between a German soldier and a French soldier. The German soldier is played by Richard Thomas. He's, his name is Balmer, and Balmer ultimately stabs with his bayonet the, um, the French soldier. 
And he ultimately dies, the French soldier. But before he does, this stabbed French soldier and bomber lie in the trenches for hours while the while the French soldier moans and wails in pain as he dies. And the German soldier is forced to face the consequences of what he himself had done. As he watches this, and he, 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 he embraces the man's head in his arms and puts his face next to his and, and cries and asks for his forgiveness and gives him some water for his parched lips and, and while he's dying and he promises to, that he will write his family and tell his family and, uh, uh, how nobly he died. He ultimately dies in the trench and Barmer lies at his feet overcome. And so he begins to look for a source of a way to identify this man that he just killed so that he can write to his family. And he finds his wallet, pulls out his wallet, and there in his wallet is a picture of this man and his wife and his small daughter. Ooh. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't tell you that story because I'm a pacifist. I don't, I don't tell you that story to make some kind of statement about war. The Christian church has always had a position about righteous war. I tell you that story because you can see the clash. The clash of value systems. The clash inside that trench. Not between two soldiers, but between two value systems. Bonhoeffer came to the conclusion that that one can't be a Christian and a nationalist at the same time. Because if you try, what happens is the lines of demarcation between the two kingdoms gets blurred. And, And I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that one of the reasons that the Christian church is so impotent in the 21st century is because that's that's exactly what's happened is that the line of demarcation between these two kingdoms have been blurred. So we don't know which is which. If our uh, divorce rate is 50%, and their divorce rate is 50%, who needs our kingdom? Or, not ours, who needs Jesus' kingdom? I mean, if we watch as, almost as much porn as they watch, then what good is a dual citizenship? And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll, if you'll look at the, the story again, you, you may note that only one of these kings appears very kingly. One of the kings is bound and bleeding. He's abused. He has got no followers around him. He's betrayed. He's deserted. Nothing seems less obvious or less likely than a claim that he might make to being a king. All the circumstances contradict any claim that he might make to being a king. Now, guys, I say all of that to bring you to this place. Against that backdrop, that backdrop of two kingdoms with different value systems, with only one of the kings appearing to be kingly 
Against that backdrop, I want to ask you, where does your ultimate allegiance lie? What is your highest loyalty in life? I'm not asking you where should it lie. I'm asking you where does it lie? I I want you to notice what Jesus says. He says, my servants would have been fighting, but they're not fighting. Well, why aren't they? Because they're my servants. And as such, they take orders from me. So tell me, where do you get your orders? Which kingdom? Which kingdom tells you what is right or what is wrong? You know, guys, um, you might remember the name. We Americans will remember the name of Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was one of the founders, founding fathers of our country. You might not know this, but Thomas Paine... (laughs) After the Revolutionary War, he left this country and lived in France. And he was invited back to this country by Thomas Jefferson in the early 1800s and um, died. And when he died in, I think it was 1809, there were only six people that attended his funeral. Six people because the the, the country was angry at him because of his critical comments that he made about Christianity. But Thomas Paine wrote a pamphlet. A pamphlet that you've heard of, I think, if they still teach us in school. But um, John Adams said about the pamphlet, had that pamphlet not been written, that Washington, this is a quote, Washington would have drawn his sword in vain. You know what the pamphlet was? It's called Common Sense. And you know what the primary message of the pamphlet Common Sense was? It was simply this, that an island, Great Britain, should not rule a continent, the United States. It's only common sense. An island should not rule a continent. That's just common sense, said Thomas Paine. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I've got another piece of common sense for you. And it is that the secular world should not rule over the spiritual world. That's just common sense. But the reality, the reality suggests otherwise, does it not? Let me just give you one one way to illustrate that, and, I, and it comes from my own experience, that I, there's a hundred other ways you could illustrate my point. But when Susie and I became Christians, we became Christians on the same night. But when we became Christians, and this is in 1970, we began to struggle with how we were supposed to give money. Now, this is not a sermon about giving, so you can all relax. But we began to struggle as as two-month-old Christians as to how we should give. And so I went to a friend of mine who um, who was kind of discipling us, and, and I, I asked him, I asked Jim, I said, uh, Jim, do I tithe before taxes 
or after taxes. And Jim said this to me. He said, government doesn't come before God. Um, but it does, ladies and gentlemen, if the island rules the continent, it does if the secular rule, if, if the secular rules over the spiritual. You know, the New Testament has another way of saying the same thing. In Acts chapter 5, Peter says to his captors, um, he says, we must obey God rather than man. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty simple principle. We obey God, not men. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, that little principle sends out tentacles into a lot of areas of my life. Can I give you another one? Here's one for you to chew on. Do I make my kids happy? Or do I obey God? Tell me, brother and sister. Tell me how many times you've answered that. And you answered it in the, I need to make my kids happy. You know what that illustrates, don't you? It's the island ruling over the continent. It's the secular taking charge over the sacred. It's the clash of the two kingdoms. And the wrong kingdom won. Guys, um, there's something else in this story that I want you to see before we leave it. But it really is the issue of the whole, this whole tension, this whole clash between the, the value systems of the two kingdoms. Everything really hinges on something else is in this story that I, I want to show you. But when it, when it comes down to the question, do I make my kids happy or do I obey God? I, I think the answer really depends on something else that's in this, this story that I, that I want you to see. And it has to do with truth. The key component in Jesus' kingdom is truth. If you give up on truth, then you change sides. Guys, you know, you can make statistics say and mean anything you want. I recognize that, and I, so I use them very rarely. But this is one that really crops up a lot. It, I mean, you see it in a lot of different venues. You, you see it in the Wall Street Journal from time to time. But the statistic I'm alluding to is this, that 70% of the people who attend church and make claims, I guess, of being Christians do not believe that such a thing as absolute truth exists. 
Guys, I'm suggesting to you that the key component part of the kingdom that Jesus heads up is truth. And 70% of the people who are occupying churches about this time of the day don't believe it exists. Here's a statement for you. There is only one thing that's certain. And that is that there is nothing certain. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is spoken like a true follower of Caesar's. Not Jesus's. Because he said that the very reason for which he came is to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Guys, this other kingdom, this this one where Jesus is the king, it's one where truth is embodied. And, and, I, and I want you to know that the chief offense that is taken by that other kingdom, Caesar's kingdom, is because of the claim that Jesus makes that truth is embodied in his kingdom. It's the thing that the other kingdom hates the most about this kingdom of Jesus's. That there is a claim, not only to the existence of truth, but that it's only found in this kingdom. So the combat between the two hinges on who do I believe? What do I believe? Who is telling me the truth? To whom will I give my highest loyalty? I'm proud to be an American, because at least I know I'm free. You see the tension? It's only us Christians, ladies and gentlemen, that have this, this tension. But, um, but as we quit this morning, Pilate has a question for you. And so do I. And so does God. He says in verse 38, What is truth? Hmm? What is it? You know, guys, here's the... You know, I, I open with this sentence. I open like this. I said, this is a pretty simple sermon, but it has some very serious and profound ramifications. The way you answer that what is truth? We'll show you just how far those ramifications extend. Because 
it's going to show up in my my priorities. It's going to show up in my schedule. It's going to show up in my loyalties. It's going to show up in my priorities. My highest loyalty is going to dictate a lot of the decisions that I make. Guys, um, truth is the stuff on which we build our lives. It's, it's the law of one's life. So what's yours? It's in truth where we get an integration of me and reality. Truth is the stuff that helps me integrate with reality. Where do you get yours? Where does it come from? You know, um, this is a horrible illustration, but it is a poignant one. I was in a conversation this morning where, uh, excuse me, a conversation this week with a couple who was, who was told in their church that if they voted for Barack Obama, they were in sin. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't, I'm not here to talk about what you think about the president or, or not. Because very frankly, I've said this before. Jesus is far more liberal than the, than the Democrats. And he's far more conservative than the Republicans. But to think that I believe that the solution and the remedy is going to be found politically and governmentally? Why, ladies and gentlemen? That's thinking just like a follower of Caesar's. Where do you get truth, ladies and gentlemen? Which kingdom, to which kingdom do you give your highest loyalty, your highest allegiance? And when you figure that out, then you'll know who your king is. You know, Jesus claimed in John 14, he claimed to be incarnate truth. You know, um, you understand, I, I, I think, that what he says is very different than what you hear coming out of the other kingdom. And if you listen to him long enough, that is... Jesus, if you listen to him long enough, you'll discover that that he's not only the king, that he's the savior as well. And you and I need a savior because sin has ruined us. 
We don't need new laws or codes or lists. We need a Savior. You want to pray for our country? Then don't worry about a balanced budget. Pray for a Savior. And I hope that Savior is your Savior this morning. Our Father, I I do pray that you will help us think through as believers who we are and who we belong to and what is our highest loyalty in life. And might that loyalty show up in the kind of choices that we make, the kind of schedules we keep, the kind of values we adopt, the kind of priorities we set. Might King Jesus be reflected in in every little facet of our lives. But Lord, first of all, you may have brought people here who have not seen him as a king or as a savior. Would you open their eyes to see that the only solution to sin that there is is a solution brought about by a relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, Father, make us good citizens. Good citizens of both kingdoms. Might the one headed up by Caesar see how remarkably different we are Because we belong to another king. We ask it all, of course, in Jesus' name.